0: You walk into your barn on a warm summer's evening, carrying your precious loaf of blessed lammas bread. You head to the furthest corner of your barn and carefully break off a piece of the bread and bury it in the warm earth. One by one, you do this at each corner of the barn until all four corners have a piece of bread buried in the earth. You give your thanks to the loaf, and hope that this will grant you protection in the coming year against fire and grain rot. As you leave, you feel safe and contented, knowing that you have a little extra protection against the uncertainties of the winter. Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. I'm Devin, and I have a Master's in American History and Indigenous Studies. I'm Sonia, and I'm doing my PhD in Medieval History.
1: We just wanted to reintroduce the project really quickly
0: for any new subscribers.
1: Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this journey. Uh, The Bobby Aga Project is a podcast and soon-to-be blog. We're getting our first post up this week about the ritualized year in its historical context. We want to explore seasonality and the cultures of Europe and North America in the context of the seasonal year. We really want to focus on historical rituals and traditions, our preconceptions of said traditions, and how they might be integrated into our contemporary lives. We think this is especially valuable given that this year has really had everyone slow down and focus on how they want to live in a new world. We hope you continue to listen, and if you really enjoy what we're doing here, consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps us keep this going, and we really want to expand it in some super cool ways. And we also have Patreon-exclusive merch, so check that out. I think it's super cool. But without further ado, today we're talking about bread. Specifically, the llamas, is it a festival?
0: Um, ritual, I guess? Sort of both? The llamas festival ritual. Excellent. (laughs) So...
1: Uh, clearly, I don't know what this is, Sonia. Can you lay out a little bit
0: of what llamas is? Absolutely. So, <laughs> llamas comes from the Anglo Saxon hlafmas, which means loaf mass. So, this was the celebration of the first harvest of wheat in the Middle Ages in England specifically, and it was held on August the 1st. But I do want to preface this by saying that throughout the British Isles and Europe, there would have been sort of analogous festivals and rituals celebrating at around this same time what's called sort of these um, feasts of first fruits. So it's this idea of this is your first harvest of the year that comes in and you should celebrate that and be happy that you have more grain. There's... For example, in Ireland, there was a pre-Christian pagan celebration called Lunasach, which was also held at around this same time at the beginning of harvest season. And in Scotland, Lammas was one of the quarter days, which is one of the days when, you know, rent was due, when you would go to court to settle disputes, when you would, you know, do all these sort of ritualized, um, like, systemic, structural things got done, basically.
1: Yeah, if you're um, a nerd like me and watch Outlander.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) um,
1: In the first season, when Jamie gets uh, beat up at the court, that was the quarter day. Yes. Yeah, just for, for context about Scotland,
0: if you've seen it and also just a i mean we're not outlander sponsor us ah uh, yeah we will advertise you on this as if they I need love us outlander but you know
1: my, shout out to my mom for making me read all of those books they were great it's
0: fantastic so yeah i just uh, wanted to give that nod that other places of course are also having similar festivities but Lamas is, you know, the name of the one that's going on in the British Isles. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today, but also talking about bread and wheat and its position in the medieval pre-modern world more widely.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So, like, why don't we start there? Because that's sort of what we did with the the last Harvest Festival we talked about, which was in North America, where, you know, we really contextualized it in why was corn so important I think if you're from a Euro western culture like we are in Canada or North America more widely you know that wheat's really important but like how how were people thinking about it
0: you know in this historical context? Right so in the historical context throughout Europe wheat has been that sort of that staple crop. It's the crop that you can dry out and then keep long term which is what's allowing you to have this surplus of food right so this is a food that means that you don't have to you know be searching for food as much and it's something that you know basically is what allows them to have settled communities wheat was domesticated in the levant by around 9600 bc and reached most of Europe by 5000 BC. So it's also a crop that had been, you know, pretty, pretty integral to the the society and the culture there for a very long time. It's also very important because of its versatility. You can cook the grain just as it is. Those are known as their wheat berries to make um, porridges or as an additive to soups and stews. But of course, it's most Common use is to grind it into flour and then make bread and pastries. It can be used to thicken soups. It can be used, it was very common as food preservation as well. Early pies were actually, you wouldn't eat the crust. It was literally just something to keep like the meat and vegetables that had been cooked in it to allow it to be portable and to keep it, keep it, keep it fresher for a little bit longer because it's cooked inside something and protected. Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Like um and mm-hmm. totally biodegradable Tupperware. Yeah, no, it's it's genuinely like <laughs> this would have been the medieval like McDonald's to go box. <laughs> like you would not eat it because initially um pie crust was literally just water and flour, so it was pretty nasty. Uh... Um and it's it's only late yeah so it it really wasn't edible like maybe if you were really desperate and like traveling on the road you'd like eat a little of it (laughs) but yeah yeah, for the most part it wasn't until um until people started adding things like butter to make this more flaky pastry that it actually became seen as edible
1: huh that's fascinating
0: Yeah, and uh, even stale bread was not ever wasted. Um, You can see that in the use of breadcrumbs and also in the medieval use as trenchers where you would take big slices of stale bread and put that on the table and it was essentially a biodegradable edible plate. What? Yeah, so you would like scoop your food onto there and eat it off your little stale bread plate and then, you know, you could eat your... Little bread plate at the end that had soaked up all the juices and sauces and stuff.
1: Uh, man, we should bring this back. I all, the, all these zero yeah. waste blogs should really consider these
0: medieval practices. <laughs> I mean, but really though, <laughs> as we've talked about before, you know, pre pre modern society was inherently zero waste because you know it took so much effort to make everything that like you didn't you didn't just throw things away for the most yeah. part or it, or if you did throw it away it was biodegradable stuff
1: yeah yeah exactly
0: um um oh the one other thing i wanted to point out as well is that it's not only the uh the wheat itself that's valuable but even the wheat stalks mm-hmm. because once you dry those out they get turned into straw which was like the all purpose tool in the medieval world you would use straw for animal feed for bedding for animals you would stuff your own mattress with it unless you were super rich and could afford a feather bed which let's be real unless you were like the king you didn't have that (laughs) Uh, and it was also used as thatching for roofs it could be woven into baskets it would be used um sort of mixed with like it, it in some cases is mixed with mud or with clay and then used to repair walls so it's This kind of all-purpose, very versatile material. Yeah, it sounds like it. And again, zero waste. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. There's nothing is wasted and it's all, you know, biodegradable. And I think that's something that we also don't think about is how, you know, we, we tend to see things that, well, that's the way that people did it back then, which means it's bad. But, you know, you look at a thatched roof... They last about 25 years, as compared to shingles, which are terrible for the environment, maybe only last, like, 10 years, typically? Really? A thatched roof lasts that long? If it's properly taken care of, it'll last that long. And it'll last even longer if you use reeds rather than straw. Uh, Reeds can apparently last up to, like, 70 years without needing to be replaced.
1: What? Wow. Wow. Sorry I'm just my, my mind has been blown I don't know anything about like roofing <laughs> I mean that's <laughs> I just, fair like wow you just think that it would like because it's straw that it would like break break down
0: Yeah and I mean I don't want to oversell its its virtues I mean it does you do need to keep on top of it and swap out um, the parts that have maybe been you know you do need to maintain your roof the same way that you would maintain any other part of your house but yeah for the most part because they'd be wrapped in these really like thick dense bundles even through the winter and stuff it'll keep you warm because it has that kind of built it's built-in insulation as well um and because it is this natural material like it can slowly break down but it's um you know you you look at a bale of hay i mean those can sit out in in the snow and be pretty fine. Yeah. Um, like the, the, the main drawback really of, of thatched roofs is that it, it can be an issue with pest management just because it obviously presents a very nice place for animals to live. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But actually in, in a lot of, um, especially in the early, earlier medieval period, they had a natural way of dealing with this where you would have your fire pit in the middle of the room, and yeah, you I was would about basically say if you if yeah.
1: you have a fire, smoke is a, a natural pest repellent.
0: Yeah. So it would not only and and get this, not only would they have um the natural pest repellent, but then you could also hang they would also hang food from the ceiling, and then you get that natural smoky flavor in it as well, because it's <sighs> constantly being smoked in your house. Ugh.
1: That's just so good.
0: Yeah, it's It's really, really. I'm officially
1: moving out of the apartment I just moved into to build myself a hut with a thatched roof.
0: (laughs) And uh, again, I don't want to, uh, you know, over oversell (laughs) the uh, the virtues of this. There is obviously the issue of, uh, you know, you can be breathing in quite a lot of smoke, but at the same time, people spent a lot less time indoors. Yeah, that's true. So, you know. To, Probably to not ideal
1: for a Canadian winter.
0: Definitely not ideal for Canadian winters, but maybe in Vancouver. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think they could they could do do fine with some thatched roofs.
1: <laughs> or sod, like in Iceland.
0: Oh, absolutely. Anyway, back to bread. Back to bread and wheat. So, um, for most people, um, also just to to put this into perspective, from uh, especially in the kind of throughout Europe, really, from antiquity right through into, you know, the Middle Ages and early modern period. For the average person, bread would be about half to three quarters of your daily caloric intake. Wow, so this is a lot of, you're you're getting a lot of bread. <laughs> so
1: with with that much, I mean, with wheat being so integral to literally every part of daily life it seems and bread being such a part of the diet did did wheat and bread make it into like a a religious context in the way that corn did in north america
0: absolutely in europe in you know antiquity and pre-christianized quote-unquote europe you do see Bread playing a role in a lot of, a lot of um, religious rituals as an offering to different gods, and as, you know, wheat being this very important, kind of venerated food. Yeah. But the Christianization of Europe really, really elevates bread to a whole new status, because when, when Europe gets Christianized at this point, it's essentially all catholic and in the catholic church it's you know you have the body and blood of christ is the eucharist oh, and because right, it's the bread <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah and it's that um you know in in catholic understanding there's the concept of transubstantiation right. so it's the idea that during the mass mm-hmm. the The ritual of the Mass ends with the bread and the wine literally becoming the body and blood of Christ. So bread, when you eat it at the Mass, you are literally consuming Christ. Which is obviously a big deal in Christian Europe that you can, you know, consume your God. Yeah. Um, so not only is it, I mean, that's obviously the And that biggest... you do it in
1: the, in the form of bread, which already yes. has so much significance.
0: It, exactly. So there's already so much significance to it. And there's, you know, this idea of, you know, God himself took the form of bread on earth. <laughs> right. Um, and that that's something you do as part of your religious rituals. Which I just wanted to clarify that because I know you know in in a lot of protestant churches they do still do communion but it's seen as like like a symbolic presence in the bread or like yeah um sort of a a um doing doing this like as a you know it it's more of it, it's more of a symbolic situation but this mm-hmm. is all obviously happening pre-protestant reformation where the the bread is Jesus Jesus is the bread like there is no separation so that's this really special
1: yeah.
0: thing and um you there know it's also there are
1: old testament stories about God sending bread as well right with yes um, Moses
0: yeah manna from heaven yeah yeah I mean that's Which the is other un- big thing un-leavened is that... bread but
1: still bread yeah, and
0: that's the uh that that's the thing is that um bread in is mentioned and is very important in the Bible, right? Yeah. Um both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean not only as the Eucharist, but also as, you know, in the Lord's prayer where Jesus says, you know, give us this day our daily bread, the time, you know, the the feeding 5000 people with a handful of bread loaves and fish again one of his miracles is multiplying bread so that everyone can eat yeah. so it it has this very ritualized symbolic importance in in uh christianity and catholicism especially mm-hmm. so you know it it really elevates it and you start to see as societies become christianized they in turn put more emphasis on bread and the eating of bread because pre-christian you know british isles and scandinavia it would have it was somewhat more i mean obviously they were eating grains but they probably would have had more a bit more variety Mm -hmm. and a, a bit more of a focus on say cattle and milk right But as they become Christianized bread, like we do see that that the bread intake increases in the diet and there's this more emphasis put on cultivating grains.
1: Fascinating. And so then like how does that, I mean, I know so in this like Middle Ages period, early Christianization and all that, that there isn't really the division between religious and secular life. But if we're talking about like a more secular part of the culture how yeah. did bread become like become integrated into that part of the culture as well right. because obviously it's so much importance it's in every part of daily life as we've made clear uh, what sort of happens on in that side of the culture
0: well for one thing bread becomes a big part of your wealth and status and you can sort of see how how the quality of your bread is is indicative of the status that you hold so you know nowadays we see like whole grain artisanal like bread with lots of seeds and stuff in it as like fancy Mm -hmm. that would have been the bread of the poor at the time because back then white bread I mean it's not wonder bread it would have been more like a like a French loaf or Italian loaf. Yeah, something like that Um, would have been only available to very high status wealthy people because that takes so much extra labor to remove all the wheat bran and grind it and have this, you know, you're wasting a lot of the wheat, basically. And it takes a lot of time and effort and energy to get that that very white flour. Mm -hmm. So we see this. Uh, division where like the lower down you were in society, mm-hmm. kind of the the more coarse your bread would be, and the more non wheat additives you'd have in it, right. you know, so you'd probably be eating wheat mixed with barley or rye, or you know maybe you're throwing in some legumes to fill it out a bit, so that's a big part of it, but the other big thing is bread and the eating of bread was to an extent seen as a marker of being quote-unquote civilized. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So we see this actually in the Mediterranean basin since antiquity. When Homer is writing, he calls his own people bread eaters as opposed to the barbarians who do not rely on bread as much. So that's, you know, we we already have this sort of undercurrent in the cultural perception of it. But then, as as I said, bread gets this very elevated status in the medieval world. And, you know, by the time you're in the 12th century, you have... Gerald of Wales, writing about people who are um, more pastoral and nomadic,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh, saying, They are a wild and inhospitable people. They live on beasts only and live like beasts. They have not progressed at all from the primitive (sighs) habits of pastoral living. Ooh. Yeah. So by that's he's writing that in about 1188. Okay. So yeah, you're you're really I mean obviously that is one one person writing, mm-hmm. but it's it there there is this broader trend that we see of wheat equals civilization. Right. And it's this combination of cultural and religious practices that really encourage this specific European style of agriculture where You know, you clear the land, you drain the marsh, you clear cut the forest, and then you plant tidy little rows, right? You have to cultivate grain and have, you know, nice, neat field systems. And this was seen as, I mean, literally as doing God's work, because by the, by the, you know, by around let's say year 1200 ish probably actually even earlier than that really by 1000 you're already seeing these kinds of attitudes of there's this idea that the land Mm -hmm. is you know you don't want to leave land as an untamed wilderness because then that means it's a that it's in disorder and it's in chaos and that As human beings, since you are directed to, you know, have dominion over the earth, the way that you are supposed to do that in the medieval imagination is to bring the land into submission, basically, and bring it under cultivation. So we have a passage like this from William of Malmesbury in 1125, and he's describing an abbey, a thorny abbey which was surrounded by swamps, but wrote, no part of the land, however tiny, is uncultivated. In one place you come across fruit trees, in another fields bordered with vines. Nature and art are in competition. What the one forgets the other brings forth. It is the image of paradise, and its loveliness gives an advanced idea of heaven itself. Wow. Yeah, so there's this huge overlap of this idea that turning take if especially you see this in monastic communities this idea that you know it is your job to go out into the wilderness so places like a swamp but then bring it under cultivation you're supposed to drain the land and make it arable land because that means that you are participating in creation and you're participating in you know literally making the world the way that god wanted it to be basically so yeah i mean bringing this back to the uh north american context and south american context also uh for uh for a hot second this is the the vestiges of this are still around when colonization is taking place so this is sort of the mentality that uh that we see with this idea of well, you're not using the land correctly, uh, which means in the European style of agriculture, so therefore it's okay for us to take this land and use it properly, quote unquote.
1: Yeah, that was um, a major thing, like heading toward removal, but like the Cherokee in particular, in like the negotiations with the new American state was trying to convey, Vince Cherokee men to, like, one, have individual plots of land, but two, to, like, take up this Euro-Western style of agriculture in order to prove to the American state that in the, the ideas of what constituted a nation in Europe, that, like, the Cherokee had a nation there, right? That they were... Yeah, they had a right to the land because they were cultivating it. Um, it ended up not proving anything to the American state because they didn't care and just wanted to take all of the land anyway. But <laughs> yeah, but yeah, uh, it was uh, a it was a big part. There was a whole like movement, agricultural movement within the the Cherokee Nation that was kind of fascinating in the early 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 19th century
0: yeah and I mean it's it's very much like I mean not the individual plots of land that won't that wouldn't come around for quite a while but yeah I mean this this idea that you know the correct way to use the land is European style agriculture Mm -hmm. and that anything else is wrong and is wasting the productivity of the land is you know something that's been around since you know the medieval era oh, productivity so this, like really entrenched belief system
1: everything you do has to be economically productive
0: yeah and it's <sighs> it's frustrating as well because i mean in in many ways europe is i mean that style of farming works in in the context of the European subcontinent,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, it doesn't it doesn't do so hot in in many other types of biomes, so it it is uh, problematic to say the least.
1: Yeah, well, and also like once you start getting out of that that type of agriculture f- for subsistence versus like massive industrial <laughs> agriculture that started in the nineteenth yeah. century uh you really that that push toward productivity becomes completely destructive as well so
0: yeah exactly and i mean not to you know not try again not trying to say well the older ways are always better but um you know in in terms of the agriculture in the middle ages i will at least say that there there isn't you know it's very different from the kind of agri business yeah. <laughs> that we're seeing today, right? It's, yes, you're clearing land and cultivating it, but also, you know, it's, it's still much less disruptive than what we're seeing today. Yeah, and well, I mean, the... it, it's much less of this, like, push towards, like, well, you have to, you know, extract every possible little thing out of the land.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's really a 18th I guess, yeah, I would argue like eighteenth century like plantation farming is where that really starts starts to develop once you have the the large plantations of yeah the Caribbean and southern um American colonies that really once you get to like a victorian period mid nineteenth century america it that's where that what we see now in this like agribusiness really comes from but i mean like then you trace it back you know yeah to its like original roots and we see it here that's
0: oof <laughs> a big legacy yeah, and for bread it, it it really is and it's this very um you know it i do think it's interesting to kind of go back and see where these ideas that we just sort of take for granted come from as we've talked about before this idea of like what we take for granted that like oh yeah of course you have to farm this specific way and it's like well do you though because a lot of people weren't doing that or if they were it was being done you know in this much more like mixed agriculture kind of way like as we see in that quote that I said before right you he's talking about how they have fruit trees, fields bordered with vines. So it's, you know, you're growing in this same small area. um,
1: All sorts of different... Fruit trees,
0: so some kind of orchards, you're growing vines, so I'm guessing grapes, um, because you could actually grow grapes in the more southern parts of England Mm -hmm. in this period because it was warmer. And then yeah, probably the vines bordering fields of likely wheat or slash or legumes. Mm -hmm. So you know it it is this this idea of cultivating the earth can be this the, this thing that gives you power over it but that is also done in a way that also brings you know that's that's also not so devastating to the natural ecosystem
1: yeah and i mean like the argument for contemporary like agribusiness is always like well there's so many people that we have to feed but if we look at like the industrialized countries where there is like this massive agribusiness like half of all the food that's produced in north america is thrown away because capitalism (laughs) so like you have to you know have capital up front to purchase the food right yeah uh and so most of it gets a solid half of all the food that's produced in North America gets gets thrown away it ends up in lands, landfills Like we have more than enough resources to f- feed everyone like twice over uh, we choose not to and part of that is because of this like productivity yeah. concept and that, that
0: things have to be worth money right (laughs) well and also then we have the fun um you know the passing passing the blame onto the individual and saying well there's so much food waste because you know you let that you you let some of that lettuce wilt in the back of your fridge and it's your fault that we have so much food waste and it's like no like no human being can perfectly plan out their meals such that no food is ever going to be wasted ever like it, well, and I
1: mean, people didn't do it, that in it's a, this
0: society either. They still had
1: composting yeah. and
0: fertilizer, and exactly, and like that's just sort of the, you know, the the how food works. <laughs> I mean, some of it is going to go bad before you get around to eating yeah. it. But yeah, I think uh, again, it's this this sort of hyper focus on the individual and on individual responsibility that creates a lot of problems because. You know, food waste is a systemic problem. Yeah, it is a, a problem that's caused problem. by... Yeah, and I would argue even more so... Like, it's it's a societal problem, but it's it's a problem caused by a handful of very wealthy, powerful people who demand constant increase in profits for food, basically. Yeah.
1: Which I think is, like, the because major difference between... What we're talking about in, like, productivity culture here in the Middle Ages and productivity culture now, where it's like, yes, you're supposed to be, like, have the land produce for you, but not to the point that, like, you're decimating the land in order to extract absolutely everything from everything.
0: Yeah, and then throwing away half of it because it won't make you money anyways. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, no, I mean, here you would be using, as I was saying earlier in this episode, from wheat, obviously, you're using absolutely everything, Um, but the same for any other fruits and vegetables you would produce. You would use as much of it as you possibly could, and, you know, we see this in, okay, well, we're going to grow grapes, and we're going to eat some of them, and the rest gets turned into wine. We're going to you know, grow fruits. Well, we're going to cook and eat because for the most, I mean, people ate raw fruit in the Middle Ages, but it was seen as like not the best thing. It was seen as better to cook at first.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, because it would make it easier to digest. But, and you can keep it for longer. Fruit
1: goes bad Yeah, so exactly.
0: And, and then you also see, you know, all kinds of preservation techniques to keep you know, whether it's jams or preserves or turning apples into cider and any kind of food waste would be turned like, you know, say apple cores mm-hmm. or, you know, things like that. As you said earlier, people would turn that into compost Vinegar, or um you could Yeah. And you can also feed it to the animals. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it it is this idea of, yes, you want the land to be productive, but there was also much more of a you know waste not want not mentality like you did not throw away things there there was that real respect for never wasting anything ever basically
1: and i mean correct me if i'm like taking this too far but that seems to fit into the religiosity of the period as well with the idea of the productivity of the land where like humans have dominion over the earth but it's in the, if you look at at Genesis and like, the Garden of Eden, it's as stewards of the land, right? Yes. Where you're supposed to cultivate the land, but as like God's hands on on Earth, so you wouldn't be throwing away God's creations just because it's not making
0: you money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> um, wasteful, like being wasteful like that would be seen as sinful essentially i i mean genuinely it it, yeah not even essentially it just it would be seen as just a sin to do something like that of
1: gluttony isn't it like if you look at dante
0: yeah it's definitely part of gluttony and also um part of part of greed to um you know that's yeah because there there is this religiosity of the period that it it kind of does lead to that like yes we are going to transform this wetland or you know this other like wilderness as they would have called it but there is that respect for like this is God's creation and we are participating in that creation And, and they saw it as like I said literally doing God's work in that you would bring this land under cultivation and then use the fruits of that land. And there's a lot of you know giving giving thanks for the for the the bounty that the land would give you and that's you know brings us right up to Lammas which is, you know, this religious ritualized celebration of the first harvest of wheat.
1: Yeah, and so now that we've we've come back around to our actual topic <laughs> for today. Uh, what what does the, the ritual of Lamas actually look
0: like? What do people do? Right. So on Lamas, the first thing you would be doing is preparing a loaf of bread that was made with the flour from the newly harvested wheat. So you would mix that up and then, depending on context, either bake it, you know, depending on the type of bread you're making, you'd probably take it to the village baker to actually fully bake in their bread oven. Or, you know, I guess in in some cases, you're maybe baking bread like on a stone over a fire in your own hearth, depending on basically the situation and the exact, you know, place. Because obviously from even from like village to village, Mm -hmm. how you're doing this is going to differ. Mm -hmm. Um, but then you would typically have then these processions to the church, to the local village church mm-hmm. with everyone in the village. And they would bring the bread to be blessed. And again, there's some regional variation on this. Um, in some cases, the lammas bread would be left at the altar and then that would be kind of dried out and saved to be bread for communion for the coming year. Oh cool. Yeah, so it's this this idea of renewal and of bringing in these these first fruits of the land into the church to be blessed. Um mm-hmm. but in other cases you would go home with your own loaves of bread and that's actually what my story was at the beginning of this podcast Um, it comes from a a protective ritual Mm -hmm. that's described in a book of anglo-saxon charms and what you would do is take your lammas bread and break four pieces off of it and bury it in the four corners of the barn um, in order to protect all the grain that you would be storing in the barn
1: oh cool
0: yeah and it's it's very much this This ritual that's it's one of the oldest points of contact between the agricultural world and the church. So that's, you know, it's one of the first kind of links that forms Um, there. There are some other ones that happen later, but that's sort of the big one. Mm -hmm. And then for the most part, after this, there would be feasting and festivities and just kind of an all round good time where you would get to eat at least some of the blessed bread and there's records of different types of games that would be played there'd be music there'd be and you know the the biggest part of this is of course all the feasting mm-hmm. and as with you know essentially every part of medieval life the meal was a big communal affair so your entire household or if you are in your village you know you go to the lords you know the you know you'd you'd go to the the big the long house Mm -hmm. and the entire household all the people all the peasants including servants and everyone would dine together at a big communal table and it was seen yeah so it's it's everyone coming together in the community and this was um this was the case for basically the entirety of the middle ages so yeah, this is sort of quite consistent throughout the entirety of the Middle Ages that for these feasts and and meals, you know, people take them together in the great hall.
1: Yeah.
0: Um there isn't this like it was seen as very um like very egotistical and very haughty mm-hmm. um for you to sneak off and just have, you know, private company and you know, it was it was seen as kind of suspicious, as like, well, why are you going off to eat by yourself? Just because, you know, like that's very strange in this world. It's not normal.
1: I love communal meals. I think that's just like such a wonderful yeah, and way I, of like
0: building community. Yeah, and it's it's also really nice, in that it's it's a way to ensure that everyone in the village basically is getting fed is getting the same quality of yeah. food, is getting the same variety of food, at least on these feast days, yeah. right? Community care. And yeah, exactly. So it's community care. And it's it's this idea of sharing in the abundance of what you have and that, you know, acknowledging that you all need each other, that this isn't, like, yes, there is this hierarchy in the medieval world and I'm not going to pretend there isn't but you know there is also this acknowledgement that like you know we have mutual obligations to each other and I you know even if you are a higher status person that understanding that you know you absolutely need all the other people in this hierarchy and that you know you you shouldn't like look down your nose at people who are essential workers. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Build a longer table. Exactly. Build a longer table, not a higher wall. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. So is I mean, I guess I'll start with the question of like is lama still practiced in the British Isles because that's where my people are from and I had never heard of this before.
0: Um to an extent, yes. Um, there are still uh, parishes that will do some kind of observance on Lammas and bless the bread, and you know, to my understanding, there are still in in some communities like some version of a Lammas like harvest festival ish thing, and um, in in some cases Lammas is observed as part of to my understanding, like part of neo-paganism or other sort of wheel of the year traditions, but Mm -hmm. it's definitely not widely observed the way it would have once been.
1: Okay. And why do you have uh, any like historical clues as to why it's not as widely celebrated? I mean, other than
0: like a general secularization well, I think a big part of it is, uh, of course, the general secularization, but also we still have, we still have records talking about people celebrating this quite widely, like, into the 19th century. And it seems like this has sort of dwindled down as more and more urbanization happened and there was less agrarian sort of uh, celebrations just more generally. Mm-hmm but i think the other big thing is that even by then it had become much less m- much less celebrated than it had once been and i really think that a big part of that is this increasing sort of increasing moves towards hyper individualization and towards a more a more distinct separation of people in society because towards the end of the middle ages we do start to see this shift of the wealthy and the powerful increasingly moving away from this collective community experience. Um, So whenever possible, these rich hosts would go with their consort and maybe like a handful of hand-picked people to go and eat uh, their meals in the Lord's chambers. So this turned into this great privilege to be, you know, in the Lord's presence because then this is a way to keep, you know, well, you can reward your allies, you can reward, um, you know, certain subordinates while you snub others. And it allows the wealthy to distance themselves further and further from the household and from the wider community and keep all the luxury foods to themselves and just sort of give inferior food to everyone else in the Great Hall.
1: Right. So, so that's when we see, like, the, the intense class stratification that continues
0: to affect Great Britain. Yes, that's <laughs> definitely where you start seeing, um, you know, the, the seeds of of the really intense class differentiation okay. um, and lamas, and uh, a lot of other festivals that and um, and feast days that normally would have been celebrated communally in the Great Hall in in general we see a dwindling of this into you know either obscurity or into much smaller more modest celebrations because you don't have this um you know you you don't you no longer have the lord of the manor basically putting on a big party for everyone and instead just retreats into into privacy all the time right that's unfortunate yeah it's 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 sad the i mean obviously i am i really want to reiterate that i am not here to say The Middle Ages were great and perfect, (laughs) but I do think that there's value. If for nothing else, there's antibiotics now. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, definitely I would prefer to be living in a world with, like, antibiotics and electricity than, (laughs) than the Middle Ages. But I do think that dismissing everything in the past whole cloth and saying, well, it was all bad and terrible is, is also unfair. And I think that we, there are nice things that can be taken from this idea of community and sharing and celebrating things together. Yeah. And I mean, so
1: to sort of wrap this up, we've talked about two major harvest festivals on either side of the world. I guess do you want to sort of start us off on on what we, as you know, modern contemporary people, who we specifically are living in a, an urban setting, <laughs> what we can take from looking at, at these major religious uh,
0: harvest festivals? Well, I think the first thing we can take away is this focus on community care and on sharing with others, whether that means, you know, obviously right now things are a little bit crazy. You can't, you know, it's not like you can go and uh, please, please don't host a giant house party. (laughs) But (laughs)
1: understatement of the year.
0: (laughs) But I do think that, you know, there's something to be said about focusing on that community care. If you're able to um, giving money and especially your time to Organizations like soup kitchens or food banks that can really use it right now. But mutual even, aid groups. Yeah, mutual aid. E- even something as simple as gathering uh, people who you know and saying, let's have, you know, a picnic in the park, potluck situation so everyone gets to eat kind of deal. Yeah. Like, socially check in. Socially distanced, obviously. Sit six yes. feet apart. <laughs> Please socially distance, wear a mask. But, you know... Checking in even informally with friends, with family, with your neighbors, and, you know, making sure everyone's eating.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, that's one of the things that I've really been been thinking about as we've started researching for these two episodes. Um, is the idea that they really focus around, and especially... Uh, at least what I took from my research on the green corn ceremony was this idea of ritualized gratitude. Yes. Of like, we have this harvest and we have this abundance now. We need to be thankful for one, what went into creating it with the green corn ceremony, with like the idea that so much work and labor, and as we talk about like mutual aid and care in North America right now, especially, there's a lot of news stories that are focusing on um, migrant workers who harvest food in North America uh, The what what goes into getting your food um, but also the just the process of making your food and be taking even if it's an individual moment taking a moment to be grateful uh, for what the world can provide and to just in enjoy (laughs) things you know to to not have to to take a moment to just enjoy a bounty and not produce something you know not be part of the economy to you know if you're making your own bread or something like that to just make something for you and your community to enjoy um if yeah. you're in a in a place where you can, uh, in Canada, you can have your, your social bubble, uh, you know your your three households that can share community terms, <laughs> uh, having, or at a at a picnic, you know having a, a shared meal, can be a a really powerful way to to focus on on gratitude.
0: Yeah, and I think there's something very, very powerful also in, as you said, taking that moment to just enjoy things and be thankful for what we have and Mm -hmm. to share that bounty with others rather than, you know, kind of scarfing down your food really fast (laughs) and then going on to the next task because you have to be so productive all the time. Like, yeah, I think taking this time it's in its own way kind of a a a rejection of this like you always have to be you know burning the candle at both ends and you know hustle grind till you die mentality and saying no I'm going to appreciate what's in front of me right now and and and, yeah
1: counting your food as just sustenance it's something that is on some level i mean possibly like if you don't practice a religion like it's fine but like in a even in a natural way is kind of miraculous you know that yeah food can be so good don't count calories is what i'm saying just eat because food is good and take time to like really prepare food if you can obviously but like
0: yeah and uh that's actually something else i wanted to uh, you know shameless self-promotion but we're going to be sharing a bunch of um recipes for different types of bread that are Mm -hmm. you know very low effort but very tasty and they don't take a lot of time um so that that you know, it's something that I've found very therapeutic through lockdown, as obviously many others have, yeah. is, you know, kind of being involved in the process of making my own food mm-hmm. um, in in that way. Because I mean, obviously, I was cooking stuff before the lockdown. But, you know, bread always seemed so difficult and finicky, and I don't know what to do. So I I have found a lot of it it feels very very nice to have made a nice loaf of bread and uh mine's a no need recipe so <laughs> yeah. you know it's something that even if you are busy and trying to juggle a hundred things you can still have that that moment those few minutes of quiet in your day where you're mixing up this dough and and watching it rise
1: yeah it can be really powerful same with just um even if you have like really limited space like at I do in my urban apartment, you can grow and cultivate some of your own food, even if it's just herbs or just a plant. <laughs> Maybe one that doesn't like produce something edible, but I think that can be a really powerful way to connect to the seasons and to, you know, your your food and sustenance is just growing a couple of things.
0: Yeah. And I think, on that note, I just want to say thank you again to everyone who's been tuning in, listening, subscribing um, and there there is you know an ancient tradition in many parts of Europe. Again, I'm getting the Ukrainian context specifically through my family lineage. Where it was traditional to welcome people into your home with bread and salt, which were, you know, kind of the foundations of life. And as my end to this episode, I just want to let you know that we might not be able to be there, you know, in person, especially in a pandemic, but there is bread and salt for you here. And I hope you enjoy your stay with us.
1: Yeah. And we'd. Uh, we're gonna post on the blog and on social media as well and um, if you do try any of these things or if you have ways that you're thinking about harvest and bounty um, as summer sort of comes to a close let us know reach out we'd love to hear from you we'd love to find out what everyone is doing um, to integrate some of these ideas into their daily life and anything that we can learn from you guys, like we said in our very first episode, this is a learning process for us as well. Um, we're doing so much research every episode, so it's it would just be really cool to, to hear from anyone who's listening. Um, thank you so much. And in the spirit of ancient hospitality rituals, there's the very old Abrahamic r- ritual of, of leaving a candle in the window, Uh, to let travelers know that they're welcome here, and along with our bread and salt, we have a candle burning in our window for you guys, so thank you so much for listening. Um, Again, if you can reach out to a mutual aid foundation, please do that, and if on top of that you have anything uh, for Patreon support, we would greatly, greatly appreciate it, Um, and just be able to, with that, we'd be able to put more and more resources into this project.
0: Thank you so much. Do good work. And we'll see you next week.